Welcome to another episode of News Points on the Air, a production of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. I'm your host, Milan Medley. Our guest for today's episode is Rockefeller Twyman. Everyone who knows him calls him Rocky. And anyone who knows Rocky knows he's had a fascinating life. In fact, he's had so many rich experiences and has so many stories. We decided to feature him in two of our episodes. Inspired by the civil rights movement and molded by Adventist education, Rocky has led a life of service for decades. In addition, he is a classically trained musician and a fervent prayer warrior. Rocky's can-do attitude has sustained the 72-year-old's drive to do all he can to help others. Rocky currently resides in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, where he has made quite a name for himself within the realm of public service. He has amassed an extensive and impressive network that ranges from major media networks and government leaders who have also acknowledged him for the numerous bone marrow donation drives he's organized over the years. I'll quit talking now and let you get glimpses into the life of Rocky, someone who is truly one of a kind. All right, Rocky, so what uh, triggered your passion to serve others? Where did that come from? Well, it came from my um, Adventist background. Um, at, um, in Atlanta, Georgia, I was really inspired by Jesse Wagner, my um, principal there in that small Adventist school. She encouraged us to get out and help others. And then uh, I went to Pine Forge Academy and uh, Paul Jones, uh, who was like a father to me and Elder Justice um, and his wife, they just all encouraged me to go out and help others. And one thing about Pine Forge I loved was, was the end gathering uh, we would do. I really enjoyed that not only because we got off campus, but um, it was just a wonderful way to go out and help others. And, uh, and one thing I wanna, um, for our viewers and listeners who may not know about Pine Forge, Pine Forge is a boarding academy, Seventh-day Adventist boarding academy up in Pine Forge, uh, Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes from Philadelphia. I'm well aware of Pine Forge because both of my parents our alumni of Pine Forge Academy, I would not be here. You know, I would not exist without Pine Forge Academy. So those who don't know, and it's a primarily African-American boarding school and one of the only um, African-American boarding academies in the nation right now. Right. And it's on a beautiful, beautiful grounds up there. I just, because having coming from Atlanta, uh, the urban area of Atlanta was so great to go there to see that. And then I went out to La Sierra University and um, I had a, a professor that I loved, uh, Dr. Gary Ross. He used to be at the General Conference in Religious Liberty, but I just, I just loved him. And he, um, he, he gave this big lecture on the glorious revolution and so mm. when I became the vice president of the student body out there, I used that as a theme. And we did so many wonderful things in the community. Um, 
we had beach evangelism. We had Operation Cookie for people whose kids were incarcerated. We would take cookies mm. to them and just all wow. kind of things. So that was just really a marvelous experience there. I, I just really got the, the, the real sense of volunteerism. And, you know, I've just carried it on with me uh, through all of my media jobs. And I mean, you're going to talk about the bone marrow thing later and mm -hmm. um, the pray at the pump movement. And, um, you know, now we're uh, down in um, Atlanta trying to help um, Congressman John Lewis's um, legacy to be preserved. So, yeah. Yeah, that was that was where all that came from. Yeah, and then studying just 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 studying the word of God, you just realize that you have to give back if you're going to be a child of mm. God. So Pine Forge really um, helped activate and inspired you to pursue a life of service. Oh sure, yeah, it was just a key element. And also my little uh, Berean Junior Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, mm. Jesse R. Wagner, she was just uh, magnificent all the way down the line. In fact, she was the, the mother-in-law of Elder C.D. Brooks. Okay. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a great connection there. And also, not only that, though, but uh, Butch Fordham was her uh, nephew. Yeah, these are all um, legacy leaders within um, the Adventist Church and especially with regional conferences. So you're really a product of, um, you know, this is this is an example of the benefits of education, especially within um, uh, regional uh, systems. I've been so blessed to have an Adventist education. And I will never forget the way I went to, because see, my parents were not Adventists, but hmm. they sent me to Seventh-day Adventist schools all my life. How did they that hear about the, Pine Forge if they weren't Adventists? The way they, had, the way they heard about it was through Jesse Wagner, my principal. And I will never forget this because her husband started Pine Forge and um, while, when I was in the eighth grade at, at uh, Berean Academy in Atlanta, he died. And um, that was the first funeral I ever went to. My mother took me to there. But after the funeral, Mrs. Wagner was sitting out in the, the limousine waiting to go to um, the cemetery. And she called my mother over and said, send that boy to Pine Forge. And that's what my mother did. <laughs> and it was just a life-changing experience for me to be in that rural setting. It was just... I mean, that's why I know I can't leave the Adventist church because I have seen the hand of God all throughout my life, you know. And another person, uh, Elder Harold Cleveland in Atlanta, who was my pastor, because 
I was very blessed to have gotten all kinds of scholarships to all these different worldly schools. But he convinced my parents to send me, you know, to La Sierra. Well, he wanted me to go to Oakwood, uh, but, you know, but I, I, I wanted to go to the West Coast and everything. And so, and it worked out well because they needed more black people out there because that was at the time when the black militancy uh, had uh, 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 really arisen. And, um, and I was able to, to, I think, break through some of the barriers out there at the time. And we even had a corral out there. It was interracial. And you won't believe this, but um, Ted Wilson was in my choir, the, the president of the General Conference. The current president? He was the, the current president. He was a loyal member of the Rocky Twyman Corral. And he has wow. a beautiful singing voice. Mm -hmm. It was just really, you know, uh, quite a coincidence. But we all knew, we said, he is going to be president one day. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's what we said. And um, I will never forget uh, one thing he told me. He said, Rocky, you know, I really didn't know any discrimination because my father was president of the Southern African Union and all my classmates were black, you know? So that was just a, it, you know, all these things just have made me realize that, you know, if we turn everything over to God, he will lead us and show us what he wants us to do. And I just encourage everybody to, uh, you know, to uh, listen to, the writings of Sister White, I know right now they're really being attacked. People just attack her writings, but there's so much wisdom in what she is saying. And um, just put God first and let him lead your life. So now I want to talk about your time in Atlanta. So I take it that's where you grew up. Um, yeah. or at least in the Atlanta area. So, and in Atlanta, you know, those who know history, especially civil rights movement history, Atlanta was one of the headquarters, so to speak, of the movement. And you happened to be there during this, uh, this epic time. Can you give me a few of your, and when I say epic, I mean, you know, some people equate that to like a really big positive thing. And it did create positive work, but it was in the face of tremendous um, discrimination, acts of racism. So it was a tremendous movement that was needed to combat such hate that was seen across the nation. But I was hoping that you can give two or three of your most memorable experiences from your time in Atlanta during the civil rights movement. Oh, wow, there's so many. Well, mm -hmm. I know one thing, you know, I was, um, I really wanted to go to jail for the cause, but I was too young 
they would not let me go. How old were uh, you? Uh, you know, to the jail. I was like 13. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I, I really was really, but what I was able to do, I was able to picket. And so we uh, uh, picketed the, the Kroger store there. Uh, we were trying to get them to uh, uh, hire more black people there because it was in a predominantly black neighborhood. Mm, and people, you know, black people to work in the store. No, they they weren't. I mean, they well, they weren't doing like you know the the cashier's jobs or anything. They were just doing. Uh, just very menial jobs there, and uh, but yet they were getting a lot of money from the black community, mm. and uh, they threw rocks at us. You know, you know, some of the white people that came by and they spat on us and everything. So that was that was a a, a very interesting experience. I really, I'm really intrigued by the the mindset you had when you were 13 years old when you said you wanted to go to jail. Can you explain that a little bit? What did that mean for you at that time? Well, it just meant that things were so bad, and we were thought of as second class citizens, and. So many other people were doing it. I mean, I mean, they weren't my age, but I, I was surrounded by all these college students from because we didn't live that far away from Morehouse and Spelman. Okay. And um, I just, it was just inspiring to see young people just mm -hmm. doing and not just sitting around talking and. It was a it was a glorious time to be black. It was a glorious time to be uh, around. We're talking 50s, 60s. What years specifically? No, this you... is like in the 60s. This is okay. like around 60, um, 65, around in there. No, not even 65. It's earlier than that. Hmm. It would be like around 61, 62, around in there. But... Um, it was just, it was just really, really wonderful. And um, the spirit was very high too. You know, people, I think people really did feel close to God because they knew that we were up against some, some terrible forces because you did not have uh, police protection or anything. But I will say this about Atlanta though, um, it was better off than a lot of other Southern uh, cities like Birmingham and because Atlanta has always had a very uh, thriving middle class. When did you first start your PR work and how did that come about? Wow. <laughs> well, it, it, it really started uh, at DC general, I think, you know, okay. and, um, you were working I, um, there, like you were an employee of the hospital? I or? was an employee of the hospital. Okay, okay. And um, my, I think my first really major big thing there was the bone marrow drive because there was a, an employee there who was a friend of mine. She needed a bone marrow transplant. 
And um, at that time, there were really very few minority donors, particularly black minority uh, donors in that national bone marrow registry. And um, what I did was I just used the media to recruit more people for that um, uh, registry. And it just kind of exploded hmm. um, because her name was Alicia Nelson and she was a lab technician. Hmm. And it was so wonderful because, you know, she had to go through all this chemotherapy and everything. And she came to all the drives that we had for her. And that really helped to boost turnout because at that time they were really sticking people with needles. And a lot of black people didn't want, you know, to take the test because they had to be stuck with needles, you know, because of the, the syphilis experiment down there. And um, so they were really afraid, but. And this was to get um, tested to see if you can be put into the system, right? Not right. the physical donation, but just to see. Right. Who would be an ideal candidate. Yeah, that's right. There were just many, I mean, I did many drives at the Adventist churches. Cause I remember one particularly at the Capitol Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church when Whitley was the pastor there. Whitley there was a There was, yeah, there was a woman who um, had a baby, was just like a year old. And um, I just, you know, Whitley let me um, have her get up before the congregation and um, plead with people to get tested. And she got up there and just cried. And I mean, the response was overwhelming. And I will never forget it because it, it was like a day, it, uh, it was a really cold day. It was like in, a, in February, because I had built the whole thing about uh, around Valentine, you know, uh, it, it, it was like a Valentine thing. And um, it was just really something the way some of those people stood out in the cold to get tested. We, that day, we, we tested about 300 people from that church. Wow. It was just really wonderful. This and, is helping me understand your very large portfolio. I'm, I'm getting a much better understanding of, because you've been doing these bone marrow drives. Continue, you continue to do them today, the bone marrow drives, and then your, your context with the media, it seems like um, the personal connection with that lab tech at the hospital um, really helped to launch this passion about bone marrow and then working with those babies who were born to mothers who had that um, addiction, that disease, that sort of, that launched um, you know, that really paved the way because now you have all these media contacts and you have all these drives and you're known throughout the Washington DC area for these things. But it was, it seems like it was what happened in the nineties 
at DC General Hospital that really set things off. Is that is that about accurate? Yeah, that's that's right. But then another thing about DC General Hospital, it was also the hospital for homeless people. Mm. It was like the only hospital that would really take in homeless people that didn't have insurance. And, and so that sparked my passion to helping those who were homeless. And here again, uh, I remember uh, the uh, Missionary Society of the DuPont Park Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is in that area. They came over, Brother Washington. I remember uh, him. He was over the community relations uh, for uh, the church, and they did wonderful things. They they brought food over there. They uh, they would go around and uh, uh, pass out magazines to the homeless patients and just give uh -huh. them comfort. It, it was just wonderful. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And um, they really did come through in a, in a, in a big time way. And then of course, um, um, other churches, other Adventist churches, you know, helped out also because they knew how great the need was um, over there. And the hospital, was very close to the DC jail. Um, and so it was just like right across the street because we would treat a lot of people from um, the DC jail. Um, and they would come in there in handcuffs and everything. Mm -hmm. And so it just, just gave me a sense of disability. And uh, uh, when I was at, uh, uh, Pastor Phipps's church, I had a tremendous choir. They were just, oh, that was the, the, the Capitol Hill Chorale. They were just fabulous. And um, a lot of them had been former Oakwood Aeolians. So I really didn't have to do that much, you know, <laughs> to get them to sound good because they were just uh, absolutely tremendous. Yeah. But one year, one year, uh, Christmas fell on a Saturday, on a Sabbath. And we went over to DC General Hospital. That was during the time of the, of the drug war and everything. And we sang for the gunshot and stab wound victims of the hospital. And the press went crazy. CNN and everybody showed up. And then what we did, we hooked up with um, the Jewish um, Community Center because, you know, they often came out on Christmas and everything to spread love and joy and everything. And, mm -hmm. and it was just a tremendous, tremendous story. I will never forget that. They, because uh, we left church, we went to church and we, because we weren't that far away from the hospital, so, you know, we just went on over there and sang and then went to our Christmas lunches. And um, so, because Pastor, Pastor Phipps was really very much into using music to help heal wounds, et cetera. And that's what we did. 
And then one other time for Mother's Day, the choir, we, we, I can't remember how that hookup came, but somebody in the choir, their mother knew Stephanie Mills, the great uh, singer, Stephanie Mills. You might not remember her, but she was a good friend of B.B. Winans. And so they went with us one Mother's Day into the D.C. jail. And we had, um, at that time, I was working at Howard's radio station. And so the radio station donated perfume and um, flowers. And it was just a beautiful experience. And we were more blessed than the people that we were in there trying to bless. It, it was just, it was just tremendous, but, but God had worked it all out. He was the one that had put all those uh, uh, connections together. Yeah. And now I want to um, transition because you mentioned earlier, um, you know, how prayer is so important for the work that you do and over the years and even um, to today, but you've, uh, led several prayer campaigns, um, the pray at the pump, uh, which, yeah. you know, was for, uh, praying, you know, to have lower gas prices in a time in our country's nation <laughs> where, uh, gas prices seem to only go up and up and up. There, there didn't seem to be an end in sight. Um, even for the many times where our government was on the verge of shutdown, um, because, you know, for whatever types of, uh, gridlock that took place in the in congress um even you've even prayed for uh earthquake victims in california you don't even live in california so you're known um you're known to uh you know how to rally the troops for prayer um can you talk about how you're still doing that now we have a group called the pandemic comforters Mm -hmm. Uh, you know i gave them that uh, name, that was what God placed on my mind. And about uh, how many people did you, are your, you know, are in your group and how do you know them? Well, it's, it's, it's a small group. It's not but about eight of us, but we do have a group in Atlanta too. And it's kind of expanding. Uh, anybody that wants to join us can, but uh, you know, we just recently went over to um, cheer up Congressman Jamie Raskin. And so we really, you know, had to keep keep it down because the number of people, because he's been receiving so many death threats because of, of um, the situation. And he, but, um, just for people who may be unaware of Congressman Raskins, who I'm proud to say is my um, congressman here um, from the state of Maryland, but he um, is leading the, um, the, you may know him from the impeachment trials that are going on nationally. There's been a spotlight on him, but he also recently over the holiday, like Christmas Eve, lost his son. Um, his son passed uh, due to uh, depression. Um, so he took his life. Um, so you and your pandemic comforters went after um, his son passed away. Is that correct? Yeah, we went over there and we we sang 
some well one of his, his, his one of his favorite songs is I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom mm-hmm. and I just had some wonderful uh performers uh Bernadette and Winston Charles from the Seabrook Seventh-day Adventist Church they're international um Caribbean artists and they had written this song called Dry the Tears and uh they used it for our fundraisers for Haiti. And then of course, David Griffiths is just absolutely magnificent. He um, he did an arrangement of uh, You'll Never Walk Along and um, uh, he, he put in um, We Shall Overcome in that too. And Raskins was in tears. Um, and you know, his, his family was out there too. Um, and uh, it was a social distancing event. They were on the front yard and everything. And, um, you know, we were, well, I, I just praise God because on that event, on, on that day, he called us spiritual advisors. Mm. And we also gave him uh, and the family copies of Ministry of Healing because I can't think of any book that can help you more than mm. during a time like this. And that's another big part of my ministry, passing out literature, because I think that's so important. We can we can go out there and sing and pray and everything, but we need to leave something for the people uh, to to read, to understand, and just to realize uh, how serious the times are right now. Yeah. Um, it seems like um, literature and also music is part of how you minister. When did music first get added to your arsenal, so to speak, in helping others? Well, I guess mm, that's a really good question because <laughs> it's been with me all my life. Yeah. But I guess. Um, and what type of music are we talking about? Piano? Do you sing? What what type of music? No, I'm really I I direct and um, okay. I I I'm a choir voice. I'm not a solo voice. I mean, I can show you how to produce the sound, but I'm not I'm not going going to be out there soloing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I. That sort of started at DC General too. Uh, I uh, organized uh, musical programs there, and um, uh, one summer we had a, a an, an art series where we had musical performances and everything. But I think it really came to really a strong fruition uh, when I had. Um, that group, the Capitol Hill Chorale at, at Pastor Phipps's church. Cause we, we sang concerts for homeless families. And, uh, you know, like we did that thing at the DC jail. We, we also went to the men's jail and, um, and I just found it to be a wonderful way to raise money because, um, I've been associated with this little Haitian church, Adventist church out here in Rockville, Harvard de Grace. And um, we put together 
some wonderful programs when when Haiti had all those terrible things to happen. You know, there was uh, in one year they had a big earthquake, and then they mm -hmm. had a huge uh, uh, hurricane that came through there. And the people are just so poor. It's just really a tragedy. They're the, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And so, you know, God uh, just opened up the doors for Dr. Charitable and I to work together. And uh, we would have, you know, community fundraisers uh, to, to help uh, them. Um, so it seems and we raised like... a lot of money. We raised a lot of money for them too, because you know I was able to get some really good people to come and perform. It seems like you are able to assess needs of communities within your network, so to speak, within Washington D.C. and beyond. You're able to assess the needs of the people and of the people they care about, and use your musical um, acumen, you use your resources with the, or your contacts with the media and just your network. And you use those things to help in whatever way you can. Yeah, that, that's true. And then God just impresses me to do stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and it'll just be so clear that this is what you need to do. Wow. And then I just kind of just follow the lead and then go right on. And um, it's just been a wonderful uh, experience to um, just follow God's leadings and give God the glory for the things that he has been able to, you know, use me with. Yeah. And also, I want to um, ask you about your Nobel, Pre Nobel Peace Prize campaigns that you've had over the years specifically, but the one that um, you gained uh, national and international attention for the Oprah for Nobel Prize, um, for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, can you talk about that campaign? And you've had several uh, other campaigns since then, but talk about how the one for Oprah came about. Okay, well, I was at uh, 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 this dinner, uh, and there again, it was, you know, Pastor, Pastor Wendy Phipps, uh, they had this big dinner for his Dream Academy, which um, helps uh, children whose parents are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And um, she, was, she came there, and she spoke. And she said, um, you know, God gives me my every breath. And then she proceeded uh, to present a check for $1 million for his organization. And that just kind of hit me. And um, I, uh, I just felt impressed to start that campaign. And <laughs> the Washington Post style section just put a little blurb in about it and then it just kind of exploded and i i, I decided to try a kind of new approach to the noble peace prize <laughs> you know to get um signatures showing that people really did want uh 
Oprah, because it's very hard to get the Nobel Peace Prize if you're a celebrity or a star like mm-hmm. that, because they usually give it to people that are activists, you know, uh, like uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, that kind of thing. But I felt like, you know, that she was truly an activist, but in a different kind of way. So it just, it just exploded. I mean, people were flying me all over the world, you know. Really? Yeah, I ended up in Morocco. <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> it, it was a big, it was a big thing over there because one of the the ten most beautiful uh, women in the world was a big Oprah supporter. So she really did a uh, 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 campaign. But it was a wonderful experience uh, to be in a, a, a country like that. I'd never been to Morocco. And it just, I don't know what to say, but it was always a wonderful opportunity to witness, you know, because I would pass our literature to, you know, um, wherever I was, California or, or whatever. And um, what we were able to do, we were able to get her nominated, you know, because okay. we even went down to Atlanta to um, uh, Jimmy Carter's center there. And we had a little crusade there and we got really good coverage because we were encouraging him to nominate her because the Nobel Peace Prize, you have to have somebody that has uh, won, you know, to nominate you. That, that, that's one of the criteria. Hmm. And, uh, and it comes about so qu- quickly because the nominations have to be in by February the 1st. But um, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, <laughs> I got free trips everywhere, it seems, you know. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I just regret that uh, I could not, they don't give that award posthumously. So it was, I couldn't do it for John Lewis. You know, we tried, but they just don't do it that way because I just felt like he really did deserve it. Uh, all the way down the line um, because uh, him putting his life on the line. But of course, you know, the competition is so stiff for that thing every year. You were involved in a uh, a prayer, a multi-state, multi-conference in terms of, you know, Adventist Network um, response to... Um, the death of George Floyd in the summer of 2020. Can you uh, talk about that for a bit? Well, all I can say is God woke me up one morning and just told me to to do something like that. And um, and what was I it went- exactly? What did it entail for people who are not aware of it? Well, it entailed going to... Um, different cities to talk about, you know, how we could prevent something like this from happening again and to 
explore the significance of um, his death. I just found that to be absolutely fascinating, that whole event. And I just thought that um, Denise Crary and your father did a wonderful job of coordinating everything together and, and putting it all together. In, in um, partnership with people from the Emmanuel Brinklow Seventh-day Adventist Church, that's who you mentioned, um, where my father's pastor. So it was a partnership between the two and it was like a virtual prayer um i don't want to say pilgrimage but kind of because it was, it was. different virtual That's events right, word. right it was different virtual events of cities that would be along the line along the route if you were driving from maryland to minneapolis yes it was just marvelous and I, we need to do something like that again real soon for uh, you know some of these issues that are out here right now. But I did wanna say one other thing about Pine Forge. Um, okay. Another a really great event that God was, 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 was able to use me to coordinate was our 50th uh, high school reunion at Pine Forge. Because, you know, Barry Black was in my class. We were classmates. Oh, the Barry Black, who is... The Barry Black, and I'm just so proud. Who is the uh, Senate chaplain, the current Senate chaplain, yeah. And what, uh, and boy, God has just used him so mightily. But for our 50th class reunion, uh, God gave me the idea to contact Linda Johnson Robb, who was the eldest daughter of President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Hmm. Because our class, we were the class of 1966, and we greatly benefited from the programs of her father. And so I Which just programs? contacted. Which programs? Well, you know, all those uh, anti-poverty programs and okay. um, affirmative action, all that came under the Johnson administration. Okay. But the thing that was so, you know, I said, well, you know, it's worth a try because our class was really in that time period. And so I wrote her a letter. And to our surprise, she came up there to the campus. Wow. And spoke. And, um, it was wonderful. And it got, you know, a lot of press coverage because of who she is. But she told me something very interesting. She said, I normally don't really come out like this anymore. But she said, the letter was just so compelling. Hmm. And all I could say was, it was the Holy Spirit that got hold of you, darling. Because, I mean... I just wrote a letter from my heart. I mean, I prayed before I wrote it, but it was a marvelous experience to have her there. And uh, I interviewed her before the crowd that was there because that was an alumni weekend. And, um, you know, she answered questions and everything. Wow. And she's a lovely, lovely lady. And we, you know, we're, we're staying in touch with her because, you know, we hope to, to have uh, some projects that we could 
you know, whereby she could remember her, her father because he is a, a, and Barry Black really preached that Sabbath because he brought in about how no other president had done more for civil rights than Lyndon Baines Johnson. And that's and what really, year was this? What year did you, that um, what year was 2016. Wow, oh, that was so that's, that was fairly recent. It was fairly recent. And wow. um, it was really a beautiful event. And um, I, um, I was just so pleased to make that connection because, um, I mean, I just, in my wildest dreams, I didn't know what was going to happen, mm -hmm. but God worked it out. But here's the thing, though. The Washington Post had done a big story about the Johnson family and how they were somewhat, you know, angry at the way that their father really had not gotten the publicity for all his hard work. Because you don't really hear that much about him. All you hear about is the Vietnam War that uh, uh, he was uh, involved in. But he really, he really opened up the doors because that civil rights bill of 1965, the Voting Rights Act, I mean, that was what John Lewis built upon, the Voting Rights Act of, of, of Linda Bank Johnson. So anyway, we're hoping to do something for her father at Pine Forge. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but we're going to do something. Because do you also realize that his, her father was the one that really started the college work-study program? And so... I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't even know that either. But it was just... Oh, it was just a thrilling experience to have her there. And she came at a time because her husband's been very ill, but she came on up there anyway and did it. And, um, you know, um, she didn't want us to fly her up there or anything. You know, she just said, well, just come and pick me up in the car. <laughs> and, and so we just- No fuss, no fuss. Yeah. <laughs> very I mean, low we, profile. She yeah. was just so- so low profile, but yet that is a very, very wealthy family because the mother owned just several television stations. Um, and they just, and there, if anybody's ever in Austin, Texas, please go to see that presidential library. Those daughters have really done a great job preserving that and they have a wonderful section for civil rights. So anyway, yes. that kind of propels you into John Lewis. And also just one comment before we do that, it seems like a lot, if not almost all, if not all of your ideas to reach out to media, to different churches, to call different friends starts with, well, God impressed upon me. Like you're very... Uh, intentional about saying that the ideas come from God. Um, like in that case in particular, I, I don't know if, I mean, that was just very impressive that you would think to write the daughter of a president whose policies helped you, but you said God did that. And 
because of and that, it was successful. And he did. I mean, so I I also conclude that he actually wrote the letter mm. because I didn't see anything that was so different about it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. she did. She said it was the most, it, it was just so compelling. Wow. And she had to come. And I almost fell out of my seat <laughs> because, I mean, it was just, a letter asking her, of course, I, I put in the background about how our class had been greatly benefited from his works and everything. Yeah. But the timing was perfect because they had just done a story in the Washington Post about how they really, you know, mm. don't feel like their father had gotten the credit. And so, you know, God said, write her. And I, I just did it. And it was a wonderful uh, story. And yeah, um, yeah. it got some really good coverage up there. With your uh, Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize campaigns, with your bone marrow drives, with uh, the work that you do with different churches and religious organizations, how do you keep it all organized? You know, what is, you know, it seems like your day-to-days fluctuate because you lean on you know what God may impress upon you so how do you juggle it all well I'm single that 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 <laughs> helps <laughs> if I were married I don't know if I could do all these things <laughs> you know maybe that's why God didn't send me to Oakwood he sent me out to Los Era so anyway that's just but anyway I just kind of like I just really let God lead me. I just pray. And then he just shows me what he wants me to do at a particular time. Mm -hmm. And that that's the best way I can answer that. You know, he just really impresses me as to where he wants me to go. And I just try to follow. Um, yeah, because your portfolio is so unique. And it seems like it has to be led by something greater than you because it's, you know, so different than other people, <laughs> other people who pursue a more traditional public relations career. Um, yeah, it, it has to come from something bigger than you. Well, it is. It's God all the way. And that's, that's another thing I think we really have to do we have to start giving God credit for things because we're so uh, apt to take credit for mm. ourselves, but we need to start praising God. How do you, when you um, do help these churches, when you, when you hear of a need or hear of something great going on within your network, within your broad network, how are you able to get them uh, featured on media, like local uh, news and, you know, the media networks, how are you able to use your context that you have built over decades? How do you get them into uh, the media spotlight? Well, I just, well, I used to work for J.C. Hayward and Maureen Bunyan, and they really helped me with, uh, you know, television news writing 
and you know they sort of taught me how to use certain buzzwords but also and these are local journalists just for people who these are local journalists yeah they they were but they were just top notch they Mm -hmm. were just um uh i mean when they were at channel nine it was number one all the way down the line uh jc hayward and maureen bunyan they were just yeah those are great people to have be your mentors then (laughs) yeah right and so you know i sort of learned from them about uh what kind of makes a story go but also i network a lot you know i go to a lot of different uh events uh where the press is and just meet the people behind the scenes a lot of times that really make the decisions because they're the ones who decide whether a story is going to be covered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I make it a point to get to know them at, you know, different stations and everything. And then God would just, he would just put people in my way. And, um, you know, I just kind of nurture the contact. Leaning on God and uh, reaching out in our community and helping others, that definitely seems to be um what leads and guides your decision making and i just really thank you for taking some time to share some insight into your your work and the impact you try to make on others and i'm just very grateful rocky thank you so much thank you for tuning in to news points on the air news points on the air is produced edited and hosted by me milan medley Executive producers are Dan Weber, Kimberly Moran, and Julio Munoz. Graphics are by Jonathan LaPointe. Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Share with your friends and family and give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. Also, be sure to subscribe to News Points. It's our weekly digital newsletter. Lever. Lever. Thank you for tuning into this episode of News Points on the Air. News Points on the Air is edited, produced, and what else do I do? I don't know. I do this thing. I almost had it. I was so close. Thank you for tuning into this episode of News Points on the Air. News Points on the Air is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Milan Medley. Executive producers are Dan Weber, Julio Munoz, and Kimberly Moran. Graphics are by Jonathan LaPointe. Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Share with your friends, share with your family, give us a five-star rating, nothing less, and write a glowing review. Also, be sure to subscribe to News Points. It's our weekly digital newsletter with news stories, special announcements, and ministry resources. Visit nadavenist.org and click on news. If you have questions or comments for me, send them to ontheair at nadavenist.org. That's ontheair at nadavenist.org. That's it for now. We'll see you next time.